You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Amid the 10,000 noises and the jade and gold and the whirling dust of Shinan, he had often stayed awake all night among friends, drinking spiced wine in the North District with the courtesans. They would listen to flute or pipa music and declaim poetry, test each other with jibes and quotes, sometimes find a private room with a scented silken woman before weaving unsteadily home after the dawn drums sounded curfew's end to sleep away the day instead of studying. Here in the mountains, alone in hard, clear air by the waters of Kuala Noor, far to the west of the imperial city, beyond the borders of the empire even, Tai was in a narrow bed by darkfall under the first brilliant stars and awake at sunrise. At spring and summer the birds woke him. This was a place where thousands upon thousands nested noisily, fish-hawks and cormorants, wild geese and cranes. The geese made him think of friends far away. Wild geese were a symbol of absence in poetry, in life. Cranes were fidelity, another matter. In winter the cold was savage and could take the breath away. The north wind, when it blew, was an assault outdoors, and even through the cabin walls he slept under layers of fur, and sheepskin, and no birds woke him at dawn from the ice-bound nesting grounds on the far side of the lake. The ghosts were outside in all seasons, moonlit nights and dark, as soon as the sun went down. Guy Gavriel Kay is the author of The Fionavar Tapestry, a fantasy trilogy comprised of The Summer Tree, The Wandering Fire, and The Darkest Road. He's also the author of Tigana and Beyond This Dark House, a book of poetry. He's known for basing his novels on historical research, which he then uses for a creative reaction. He's known for basing his novels on historical research, which he then uses for a creative reimagination of history. His newest novel is Under Heaven. Thank you for joining me, Guy. It's nice to be here again, Vic. Guy, this is a, a really interesting novel that you, is recreates the Tang Dynasty. So tell us a little bit about the period upon which the novel is based and what originally, long ago, led you to choose this as a subject for revision. One of the uh, amusing anecdotes in the background of all of this, Vic, is... Uh, Part of my research process is always to, uh, after reading books or articles, I'm in correspondence with the academics and scholars who've spent their lives researching these periods I'm working with. And I ended up doing a cold call upon uh, on one academic, the University of Maryland, a department head of Asian studies. And I sent her a couple of questions. And at the end of the uh, her very generous reply, she had a PS, I've read all your books, and then uh, PPS, uh, I always knew you would get to the Tong Dynasty. 
And I wrote back saying, I'm glad one of us did. But the truth is, uh, once I made a commitment to uh, doing a book inspired by dynastic China, it became pretty close to a slam dunk fairly early in the, in the overall reading phase that the Tong was going to be the, the period I, I narrowed in towards. It's an astonishingly rich, complex, culturally sophisticated, politically uh, intrigue-laden, a material culture of stupefying wealth, literary culture of absolutely dazzling achievement, a time of very great transition, which always interests me as a novelist because cultures in, in change, in flux, are the ones where you could find the most interesting material to work with. So in a real basic sense, this was uh, a marriage made under heaven for me. <laughs> <laughs> There are so many really uh, amazing aspects of this book, uh, just in terms of how modern it seems to us, how familiar all these things seem, how um, st uh, strangely uh, reminiscent. Uh, who would have thought that we would have so much in common with people who lived, you know, uh, 1,200 years before us? Well, one of the things, Rick, that endlessly fascinates me about working with history the way I do is how utterly strange the past can feel and seem sometimes, and then how, as you suggest, uh, eerily familiar it can seem in the very next moment as you're reading something. And as a writer, I actually like to engage the reader at both ends of that spectrum. I like to show you behavior, uh, worldviews, uh, circumstances that are staggeringly different, and then in the very next moment, uh, as you're suggesting, bring these characters in this time uh, up in close focus to the interests that, that we have today. So I'm glad you made that observation because that's one of the two ends that I'm, that I'm working to explore in, in all my books. Now, one of the things that you do very well in, in all your books, and I think in particular in Under Heaven, is to immerse us in the perceptions of your characters who do live in a very different culture. And, and this must mean that you must immerse yourself. And, and I'm wondering how much of what was written, because, uh, and we'll talk more about this, that's really fascinating, how literary a culture this was. How much of the literature did you read, and how did it affect you? That's a good question, how it affects one. I think that any time you're doing sustained reading in a time and place, uh, in, in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways, your own worldview shifts. I think it takes a little time to sort out exactly how that has uh, altered you personally, and I'm not there yet. I'm still coming out, if you will. I'm trying to avoid the bends, as divers say, by ascending too fast, or by not ascending too fast. Uh, I spent, in various ways, about seven years uh, reading and thinking about aspects of, of Eastern culture, and then, more specifically, about the Tong Dynasty in the 8th century. The 
poetry was, as you suggest, one of the gateways. Um, the great artists, the great literary artists of the Tong, are without question among the very greatest that have ever lived and worked in any culture, any time, anywhere. Uh, this is a supremely impressive and moving writing. So on the most basic level, as a reader, the immersion, as you call it, that I had into, into their work uh, was very powerful. There's a lot of writing in the book, by which I mean characters writing poetry themselves. Uh, a lot of it is translation of actual verse. Some of it is my own. Uh, because the society valued writing so much that poetry even became one of the tests you had to pass in the examinations for the higher ranks of the civil servants. It was a condition precedent to attaining power for many people. Uh, as a writer, I think that's a fabulous way to arrange government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I I I agree with you, and I thought it was a really fascinating uh, look at this culture that is so verbally based and literarily based that the the bureaucrats have to be poets in order to become bureaucrats. It was a way of breaking power, Rick. The this began in historical terms with the Empress Wu, the first woman to actually hold. Uh, the imperial throne in, in that time. And she was trying to shake the opposition of the aristocrats to her. So what she did was institute these very elaborate examinations whereby men of very ordinary backgrounds could aspire to really powerful positions at court without uh, the requirement of aristocratic lineage and the exams included this element, this aspect of not only did you have to know history, not only did you have to know current events, you had to be able to write elegant poetry to standards. And so it all began with an attempt to shift to a civil service that was completely dependent upon her instead of upon their family's ancestry. And that led to the emergence of this emphasis of, of writing skill as part of what could lead you to, to have access to power. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the shape of this book, the, the plot of the novel. And, and it, it's set during the Kitai uh, dynasty, which is your version of the Tong dynasty. Your main character is Shen Tai. He's uh, the son of a, a general. He is in exile. Tell us what about the, that opening scene, which is really strikingly beautiful and, and literally haunting. I wanted to do a book that would bring the reader towards this spectacularly uh, large and sophisticated court and capital city. And one way to, to do that drawing in, that immersing, as you called it, is to start with the character as far removed from that level of urban sophistication as possible. So the book actually begins at the short passage I read off the top, suggests with one man completely isolated and alone, 
by a mountain lake, and he's there burying the dead. He's doing honor to dead soldiers from battles that have taken place over a hundred years before, including one where his father was a commanding officer. And the casualties of the battle in which his father was, was a leader never, ever left Ty's father's awareness, his, his grief and sorrow for the number of men who died to no purpose, because in the event that war had no consequence. So Ty's honoring his late father's memory by doing this solitary act of piety, laying to rest the dead and their unquiet spirits. It gives me an opportunity to have the book move, have the reader move, from extreme solitude and isolation towards the tumult and turbulence and danger that lie in wait, if you will, in the in the imperial city. And that's an arc, that's a movement that I find very satisfying in, in literary terms. One of the things that I think is, is really fascinating uh, about this uh, society you've created is the very complicated uh, sense of honor in the social dynamics. When we here in the 21st century, we think we've invented these things that most uh, everything that we experience was invented in at, at most the last hundred years, and, and to find out that most of what we, uh, the things that affect our daily lives, were invented like 1,200 years ago is something of a shock. <laughs> Talk about the 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 real honor system that you based yours on, and, and how how that worked. Well. First of all, you're quite right, of course, that we live in a, in a sometimes shockingly ahistorical culture where we think, uh, especially baby boomers like myself, we think we invented everything, and uh, perhaps including having babies. And uh, the, the awareness of how far back and how many different shapes and permutations uh, culture can take it's one of the things I like to explore in my books. At the same time, the other aspect of this is that the culture that I'm trying to develop in Under Heaven is an extraordinarily formal one, because it was. The ways of addressing people, the ways of addressing parents or siblings, let alone strangers, the way in which a letter was framed, was for us startlingly layered with formality. And Rick, we are possibly the most informal culture that's ever lived in many ways. So the technical challenge that I found an interesting one was to write a book that hints for a really informal culture at the degree of formality that I wanted to lay in with with this society and in this book. You can't do it literally. For one thing, it would have been an 1,800-page book. For another, I would have had readers half asleep or more than half asleep. So you have to find technical ways to suggest that degree of hierarchy and formality for readers living in a, a really casual, informal society. Well, one of the things I like is that you use this kind of uh, setting of honor and, and this this very complicated uh, uh, social structure to 
create character, create atmosphere, and drive the plot, which I think is very clever as as a writer. And there's one part where one of the characters says, if we err in public, uh, it does not signify then. And I love that idea of that, that the royalty could do pretty much whatever they wanted to in public so long as they pretended it just didn't happen. There's a an inherent uneasiness in a modern a secular democracy with the degree of license of power that has existed for much of history for the aristocracy and, and certainly for, for royalty. I want to to suggest this in Under Heaven, among other things. The book, I don't think of spoiling anything. This all comes in the first chapter. The book takes its momentum from a gift that's given to to Ty, the protagonist, for his uh, actions, the honor he's doing the dead soldiers in the first chapter. He receives a gift from uh, nobility. Now, he's given horses, and it's made very specific in the novel that one horse of this particular breed would be a generous gift. Four or five would be uh, remarkable. And he's given 250 of them. And what I was trying to do, among other things, was suggest that the princess, the imperial nobility who's bestowing this gift upon him, is so cut off by her life from the measurements, the the scale that ordinary people live by, that she has no concept of what 250 of these heavenly horses, as the Chinese call them, would do to a man or a society. It's like winning the lottery, but also becoming instantly dangerous to everybody around you. And that idea that you're suggesting of the of what the, the cut-off quality of nobility it's exactly what I was getting at with that utterly outsized, almost ridiculously large gift that sets the novel in motion. Let's talk a bit, a little bit and dial back about one of the things that you do with all of your novels, and this novel as well, is to uh, internalize a, a study a piece of uh, a period of history to the point where you've internalized it, and then you recreate it using the different names. You write, I would argue that you write historical fiction and nothing else. Um, your work is often classified as fantasy uh, because you write from the perceptions of the characters and the characters in the, in the periods that you write about believe in things that we currently consider fantastic. Who knows, maybe 30 years from now, there'll be mainstream beliefs again. <laughs> well, that's happening, Rick. I think one of the things I'm optimistic about, and there aren't a whole lot of things that encourage optimism in today's world, but one of the things I'm optimistic about is the uh, blurring or eroding of boundaries and categories and genres in literature. I think it's happening both from the, if you will, the pop culture commercial end of the spectrum, there are there, there are two generations now of readers who have grown up with elements of the fantastic or indeed science fiction or horror as dead center in their culture 
whether it's uh, watching vampires on television or reading about them in books or uh, watching James Cameron movies, that uh, elements of speculative fiction are at the heart of popular culture. In addition, uh, and connected to this, an exceptionally significant number of quote-unquote mainstream writers are now starting to take advantage of the usefulness of elements of the fantastic in their own fiction. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road is a dystopic science fiction novel. Margaret Atwood is writing science fiction. Michael Chabon is writing fantasy and science fiction and winning Pulitzer Prizes. So my optimism is with respect to something I've been saying for a long time and hoping it might be true, which is that these borders and boundaries are, are breaking down. In the last few years, I think I'm belatedly and finally turning out to be right. I've been saying it for years, and I might not have been right when I started, but I think I am now. Well, talk about why you, as a writer, um, decide to... to Rather than write a novel set in the Tong Dynasty with the real characters, you clearly know them all, the real the real players in these power struggles. Why did you invent the Katai Dynasty uh, as your playground? This is this is the uh, the filibuster question, Rick. This is the one I could go uh, for our entire slot talking about because I've written uh, speeches and essays on this topic. Mm-hmm. I always worry that the soundbite answer will distort it, but Let me give you a couple of aspects of this. I've always been uneasy with the idea of a novelist presenting the illusion that he or she knows and understands the inner thoughts and character of real people. I find this both ethically and creatively troublesome for me, which is to say that I think it's it's in some way profoundly wrong if somebody else does it, but I have difficulty with presenting the idea that I know what Anne Boleyn or Henry VIII were like in bed. So I'm more comfortable creatively sharing with the reader, because it is a sharing, the idea that the underpinning of my books is Islamic Spain, or Provence at the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine, or Alfred the Great's England, but it's not identical. That slight, what one reviewer called quarter turn towards the fantastic, is what's what let the reader and I share a nod, if you will, with each other, that we don't know the real people and their personality. My characters are inspired by but in no way presuming to be identical to those people who actually lived. And I find this creatively and ethically liberating and empowering as a writer. There are other aspects to this on a much more mundane level. If I've shifted that quarter turn towards fantasy, Rick, even if you know the actual history of a time and place, you don't know where my book is necessarily going because with that little shift away from history towards fantasy, I've served notice to you that I've reserved the right 
to shift events a little bit. And that's a terrifically useful tool if I want to keep you up till three in the morning trying to find out what's going to happen next. You mentioned that quarter turn towards the fantastic. And I have to say that in this novel and your other novels, and particularly in this novel, your use of the uncanny and the fantastic is among the best I've read. It's the most moving and powerful, but it also seems uh, realistic. I mean, I when when uh, uh, Shantai is burying the the remains and hears the ghost, I I believe that 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 could really happen. And there's some other incidents that involve wolves and and stuff. That I think what you do well is to suggest and let the reader fill in the blanks. It, I I think it's a remind it's the the perfect use of the uncanny. Thank you. That that's very generous of you. Uh, one of the other aspects, remember I said I could filibuster on this all day, I take the view that in a lot of historical fiction, there's a slight or larger smugness, a sense of superiority among writer and reader today regarding the beliefs of the past. It's as if we say, can you believe that in ancient Byzantium, they thought that if you got an alchemist to inscribe a curse tablet and you threw it into the grave of someone newly dead, that would increase the likelihood that the curse would have effect. They were so quaint. We have this innate instinctive superiority when we think about what people really and truly believed in earlier cultures. And it occurred to me many years ago that it might be a really effective technique, device, to make the world of my novels be as the people in that story thought it to be. So if the people in this setting believed that the unburied dead would have their ghosts restless and, and, and disquieted because they had not been honorably and properly laid to rest, why wouldn't I make it so, so that the reader today gets a fuller sense of empathy and awareness of how the characters in the book saw the world? And that's been something I've been working with for, for several novels now. Make the world of the book be the way the characters in the story thought it was. One of the things I love about this book is, and we talked a bit about this a little bit before, is this emphasis on reading and poetry. And I want you to talk a little bit more about this, about creating fictional poetry. I mean, in many ways, there's there's a lot of what a, what could arguably be called metafiction in this book. There, you create fictional fiction. And, and uh, talk about studying the real poets, internalizing them, and recreating them yourself. The poetry is really rather beautiful. Oh, thank you, first of all, although that flirts with the kiss of death in discussing a novel that, that it, it can lead readers into thinking that they're going to end up having to do an examination themselves on poetic technique at the end of it. I read with enormous pleasure uh, a tremendous amount of the writings of the, of the Tang Dynasty poets. As I mentioned before, they're, they're spectacularly talented and important. And 
it was very clear to me early in my research that this was going to have to play a role in the novel. So throughout the book, there are sprinkled, if you will, fragments of verse that are uh, translations of, of Tang Dynasty poets. So those are real translations then? Those are real translations. What I usually did was take half a dozen or more versions of a given poem and work with all of them to pull together a single version that suited my purposes and my taste best. So these are, if you will, a metafiction. These are a, uh, a bringing together of many different translators' works, and in some instances, my own glosses or adjustments to those. There are a couple of poems in the book that are my own, inspired by and attempting to evoke the style of, of, of Chinese poetry in the 8th century. But all of this, I hope, sits comfortably in the narrative drive of the book. In other words, I don't ever want a reader to stop and admire uh, a poem. I want the reader to come to realize that these fragments, these bits of verse, are central to the drive of the book they're reading. There's one scene where... uh, uh, a young 17-year-old courtesan is irked and irritated beyond belief. Oh, she is funny. That that perception is hilarious. Yeah, she's an outsider, isn't she, Rick? And she cannot fathom why no one is looking at her because they're in this elegant uh, house and everybody is listening to a chubby, rumpled, older fellow with food and wine stains on his clothing because the the chap is reciting poetry and this young woman finds it inconceivable. Now that's that's a technique that a writer can use is because you're doing the outsider's view of something central to the culture and that's the first main exposure the reader of Under Heaven has to this fascination with and obsession with poetic craft that this culture has. You see it from outside through the point of view of someone who's basically saying, what is the fuss? What's this all about? Well, and that's also our introduction to one of my favorite characters in this novel, uh, Sima Jean. He's he's such a great uh, character. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, that a poet is a, a a real man of action. He's he may be a poet now, but we we understand that he has a backstory that's fairly violent and and, and action oriented, and and he's certainly not incapable now when he's not out whining, dining, and drinking. Um, so talk about creating this poet. Well, one of the notes I have in in my notebooks early in the shaping of Under Heaven is I literally scribbled and put a box around it, and I think I underlined the box, and I said something like, Simizian has to come close to stealing the book. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's ex- you managed that, exactly. <laughs> and I was, I was, he's a secondary supporting character, but as we often know in film and in theater and in fiction, these secondary characters can uh, have that kind of uh, energy and a vibrancy. I mean, if you want to say Tybalt steals Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. and, and when he dies, a certain aspect of energy 
might come out of the play because he's so vibrant a character. And I wanted this particular rumpled, uh, talented, hard-drinking, sword-wielding figure with a backstory to, to come close to, to running away with the novel. Obviously, you don't want him to entirely succeed in running away because then your principal characters lose energy and focus. But I did want to walk towards that stage because the character fascinated me. I had fun. I rarely have fun writing my books, but I had a lot of fun with that figure. Well, one of the things I think that he says that's very interesting and true now as it was then is that um, in in this world where writing is so important and where there's so much danger and intrigue in the court with your alignments with the with the ever-shifting center of power, as you noted, 250 horses, that's like giving somebody a, a super tanker with a nuclear missile launcher as a, as a birthday present. <laughs> And that may you you'll be very rich and very popular and very uh, dangerous. Not a bad metaphor, Rick. <laughs> uh, he says something that's very interesting: that you can mask a dangerous comment in a poem. You have to mask them uh, in that culture, and frankly, into the twentieth century. This is a phenomenon that existed, say, during the Soviet Union. Uh, and countries behind the Iron Curtain as recently as, as 25 years ago, uh, it was perilously dangerous to make a contemporary critical comment about the emperor in Tong, China, or about the Politburo in 20th century Soviet Union. One of the techniques that writers have always used is to couch it as a fable or a fairy tale or a fantasy or set it in an imaginary past. And in fact, the Chinese writers did do exactly that. They would set their poems that were mildly or sometimes not so mildly critical of the contemporary emperor, and they would set them in the past, either real or imaginary, to give themselves a little breathing room and avoid being exiled or executed for daring to criticize the current emperor. They were making a comment that was apparently set as a comment on an emperor five or six hundred years ago. So you had to mask critical commentary or you were at risk of your life. And one of the things I thought that when I was reading this book is how remarkably urban this culture was. Uh, again, this is another thing that seems like a, an invention of the 20th century, is the city that's so big that, and this is a, a, a quote in here, this was the way of life in the cities. An assault could occur in a public place and nobody would notice. We, we always think that Kitty Genovese is the, you know, the origination point of that. But Nice observation, nice observation. At the time that I'm working with and inspired by in the 8th century. London and Paris would have been successful at that stage, market towns of between 15 and 20,000 people. And Chang'an, the, the capital of Tang Dynasty China, had two million people. The scale was absolutely colossal compared to anything in the West. The central street running north-south down through the city 
was five hundred yards wide. Not feet, five hundred yards wide. And just try to even picture it. It's three football fields with an end zone to run through and high five the fans beyond the beyond the end zone. It's overwhelmingly vast, sumptuous, magnificent, crowded, noisy, dangerous. And I wanted to work with that. As I said before, I wanted to start with solitude and quiet and have the character, the protagonist, move towards that brawling tumult, what they called the dust and noise, and to do a book that thematically is partly about finding a balance that between was those two stages. Ah, well, we got there. Because <laughs> balance is a, is a big theme in this book. Everything is balanced. Everything is in parallel. Um, talk about this sense of, of of balance. Was this part of the, the Tong dynasty? It seems like it's a kind of a core cultural value. It's part of the emerging religions of the time. Uh, Buddhist, Taoist uh, religions were entering into Chinese awareness from, uh, from India, from the West. And the notion of balance is embedded also in, in Confucian thought. Um, this was both uh, I suppose, a, a thematic, philosophic motif for me. But in another way, it was a purely literary one, is that the, the idea of structuring a novel around the, the conflict between the desire to withdraw, to have your quieter, contemplative, peaceful life, and a sense of duty or obligation to play a role in dangerous, tumultuous events to try to make your world better. This is one that the protagonist is fundamentally wrestling with from the opening of the book right to the conclusion, is that finding a balance between those two impulses. One of the things I think this book does very well is in the form of a ripping yarn, it really is kind of a, a, a it's a, it's certainly a page turner. It has a, the the characters are very powerful and we feel those emotions, but it's also well, really quite exciting. And and I want you to talk about uh, having created this uh, journey that you have from the empty mountains to the tumultuous uh, city city that is bigger than almost anything we can imagine now. Um, talk about. Uh, finding the story because that's one of the things that you know you were talking about earlier about how uh, genre fiction has been you know elements of genre fiction have been accepted as more parts of literature i think one of the things that the literary authors have also uh, discovered is that it's okay to have a plot i think you're absolutely right and uh the the word that comes to me amusingly here is balance again because i've always argued that powerful and entertaining fiction involves interesting things happening to interesting people, uh, ideally written in an interesting way. And it's our responsibility as writers to try to deliver the hat trick, if you will, to the, to the reader. So some kinds of fiction will have closely observed, thoughtfully constructed characters 
and nothing very engaging happening to them. And others will have rip-roaring adventures taking place with flat, cardboard-like protagonists. And I set myself, for better or worse, the, the task of trying to deliver both of those things, is that I want the reader engaged by, interested in, uh, empathizing with complex characters in the story, but I don't want to slow it down so much that you're not still, as you say, turning pages to find out what happens next to them. I'm trying to, to offer you in balance both aspects of that. One of the things that I think that is so remarkable about Under Heaven is that while it has that real narrative drive, and I don't, I think that you manage in the end, when we finish the book, to bring us a conclusion that feels also very balanced. It does, it, it feels real. Uh, that's what I really liked about it, is that certain of our expectations don't come to pass. And, and that seems that that's the way it would happen. How much, talk about plotting this novel. Do you, as you write, do you have an idea where you're going every day? Or do you like know, do you know kind of where the end point is and you're just kind of fill in the blanks in the journey? Or do you just, are you driving uh, into I'm the dark? I'm surfing a very big wave, Rick, and I'm trying to stay on my board. <laughs> is that uh, I don't outline. And I don't, I don't have any uh, extensive notes of the conclusion uh, early in the game. Certainly by halfway or a little past, I'm telling myself, you bloody well better figure out where this is going because you have to start heading there sometime around now. But I appreciate your, your general observation about the ending because I have to tell you that as a reader, I am so often depressed and frustrated by books that have hooked me in and then let me go mm -hmm. towards the last third. Films, too, but we don't invest as much in a movie. A movie's two hours of a life. Uh, a book can be a lot. And if the writer has drawn us in powerfully in the early going and the ending doesn't deliver the satisfaction that the first part suggests is coming, we feel cheated mm. and deeply disappointed. And I've had that happen to me as a reader so many times that I'm a little fetishistic, I'm a little obsessive about making the endings work. It's one of the reasons I take so long, Rick, because I'm now about, looks like a little more than three years between books, is because I'm really conscious of wanting to get it right, and the ending is a big part of that. Well, you know, this book not only has a, a great story, it's also about stories and storytelling and the differences between what we learn from history and what we learn from fiction. And you have some really interesting uh, narrative techniques where you'll pull back from, from the story a bit and talk about how the historians look at the events that you're writing about from the perspectives of the characters. That's nicely observed, because in fact, that is exactly what, what happens at intervals. It was risky, Vic. I was conscious when I, when I decided to, to develop this aspect of Under Heaven that I was taking a chance, uh, or to put it another way, that I was trusting my readers a lot. 
because the effect of that, what I'm calling the long view, where you've been immersed with with the characters of the story and they're they're working their way through some violent or tumultuous or emotional crisis, and then for uh, several paragraphs or a page or two, you're given a distant perspective on those dramatic events. There's a risk that some readers may feel yanked out of their identification with the characters. And I was willing to take that risk because I think the upside is so great. And the upside is that it lets the reader see how these grand-scale events, or these very intimate personal family events, fit in to something so much larger, which is the overarching sweep of history. And not only that, not only that they fit in, but they may fit in ways that the characters or the reader are surprised by, because we're constantly rewriting the past. We're always changing how we understand or interpret previous events. An obvious example in America would be how the the landing of Columbus in 1492 would have been taught and celebrated in 1950 and how it would be taught and discussed and debated in 2010. We're constantly revising how we interpret and understand our own past. And I wanted to offer a hint of that in these long-focused passages of Under Heaven. Well, the other part of history that we've recently re-understood is the Cuban Missile Crisis. I just heard a great quote when somebody said, I'll never forget the day that John F. Kennedy tried to kill me. <laughs> so Brinksmanship has a complex history. Yes, and, and there's a lot of brinksmanship in this book. You create a, a full-scale war, and a lot of this, this book deals with war and warriors, both warriors in peace, in times of peace or uneasy peace, and warriors in times of war. Uh, the, the observation that I took away was that warriors are warriors, whether they're at peace or at war. I think that's a good I think that's a good thought. I think that's one that would be fundamentally applicable today and through all periods of history. I think there's another line early in the book about someone says peacetime is for the calculating ones, that when there's a peace going on, the government may be organized and orchestrated around the, the bean counters, the, the tax collectors, the people who are measuring the size of plots of land and how much tax can be extracted. Wartime creates a different, you may need even more taxation at that time, but it creates a different psychology in government. And I think you're quite right that some of the tension that exists in the novel has to do with the status of uh, the peace in the country and whether it can last and what will bring it down if that happens. The idea that the most glittering, successful, dazzling cultures may have the seeds of their own destruction working within that are not visible until they break through the surface and and chaos follows. 
and that's as applicable to the modern world as it is to to China 1,300 years ago. You know, as a writer, you create some really wonderful uh, set pieces. There are just some uh, great scenes that, and one of the things I noticed, and uh, is that some of these epic set pieces. Uh, when you get to the end, and as a reader, you're just going, oh, you have this whole big picture in your head. And then when you kind of trace it back, you realize that the, that you as the writer set this emotion with just this tiny little event. Is that something that you do deliberately, or is that something that emerges? I don't think there's a formula, Rick. I think there have been times over the years when I have said to myself, uh, I'm going to make this particular night so over-the-top exhausting for my protagonist that the readers are going to be exhausted by the time it's finished. One of those books, there's a, there's a, uh, a sustained scene one night in Lord of Emperors, my, the second of my Byzantine books, where I was conscious and grinning a little bit to myself that just when the character and, by extension, the reader think that it's it's over now. It's time to go to bed. We'll deal with the rest of my life in the morning. Something else happens, and then something else happens. That's been conscious at times. In other instances, because I don't write to a formula or an outline, it's organic. It's, it's growing out of the impulses I discover in the story where it wants to go. So I don't think I could give you an either-or answer. I'll say that there have been times I could think of where it's been one or the other. Now, this novel is titled Under Heaven, and there, that has a, a lot of implications, I think, through, throughout the novel. Talk about this, this theme of, though the gods are not present in your novel uh, in any, um, as part of the plot even, there, there is this, this thought that we're looking at something that is, has been set in motion by powers greater than the, the people who are, who are currently think well, of the themselves emperor's as rulers. rule in Chinese thought, of course, the, the title is, is a, uh, a phrase well known to, to Asian studies, that the emperors ruled with the mandate of heaven. They ruled under heaven. And the, this is why, of course, they could not fail. It's almost like papal infallibility in, in Catholic faith, that it was inconceivable that the emperor could err or fail because that meant the withdrawal of the mandate of heaven. So the title on one level is evoking this, this uh, long-standing, deeply held belief in, in the nature of imperial rule. The other, one of the other nuances I wanted to give the title is linked to something we were just discussing, which is the pulling back to examine the uh, the events, the sometimes dramatic, immediate, personal-scaled events, are taking the long view and looking at those. And it's almost like a, a nesting dolls effect I'm after, that the, uh, the very personal events are having an impact on larger-scaled political events, and these larger-scaled political events are being analyzed long after by historians with their own agenda, and all of this is happening under heaven. 
I was working for that building outwards nesting dolls effect in this novel. One of the things that that uh, the characters I love was the was the Canlin warrior. Talk about creating the, the these warriors and, and their their society and, and pulling your putting characters who don't quite belong in the order in there for long enough to marinate. There's a uh, there's such a long tradition in Chinese culture, pop culture, even to this day, the in the uh, in the martial arts, uh, historical films, in something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where you merge fantasy with, with warriors. And I always thought it would be fun and consistent with the culture's view of itself to work in some aspect of this religious sect that also emphasized and embodied uh, martial arts training. And there's also uh, a very long tradition in both writing and, and history of the suggestion that there was a role for women to play in these, in these sects. So my Canlan warriors are a nod towards that tradition in, in Chinese culture and that it also allowed me one more way of giving scope and room uh, opportunity to develop female characters with some ability to influence their own lives and the events of the book, because I'm always looking for that. Well, you you do a great job with the women in this book. They're very interesting. And I, I love the way that you create their ability to have real power in the world. Um, even from the, from the lowest level uh, on up. So talk about um, the position of women in the real Tong dynasty and how that influenced your your writing here. It influences my writing in every book I've ever done, Rick. Uh, what I'm looking to do is find ways for the female characters to assert some influence, I'll say, on the book, but it's also on their own lives and the society. And it has to be done for me with some measure of respect for the actual culture. It feels gratuitous to throw in 21st century values and, and frameworks into a historical setting. So the women, when you talk about asserting power, in under heaven, almost without exception, the women having an influence on events or even an influence on their own life have to do so indirectly, because that's historically true, that they had to work through the influence they have on the men in the culture for the most part. That uh, this has been the way women who have often had extraordinary influence on historical events have often had to do it in that indirect way. The way in which I signposted in Under Heaven is that all of the scenes that are narrated from the point of view of a female character are told in the present tense. Because I find present tense extraordinarily immediate. It's, it's here and now. It's not John entered the room. It's Mary enters the room. There's an immediacy and intensity to what's going on in the present tense. And I wanted to suggest that the female characters 
needed to be absolutely tuned to what was happening in a given moment, observing it, recording it, registering it, thinking about it, picking up the vibrations, because that was the way in which they had a chance to, to shape or control uh, events in their own lives. The prose in this book, I thought, is was really superb, just on a, a sentence level. Reading the book is a, is a real pleasure. How, how much of this uh, pours off the tip of your pen or, or often flows from your fingertips into the word processor, and how much of it is through uh, grueling revision? The latter, for the most part, Rick. Writing is rewriting. Certainly, in the early drafting, I'm very conscious of trying to get it right, to say things in, in a way that will have a sentence-by-sentence sentence impact on the reader to give, as, as you're generous enough to say, a pleasure in the actual reading of the story. I don't want it to slow down. There are writers who, who write what I've often called overloved prose. <laughs> I like that term. <laughs> you're too conscious that they're they're intoxicated by their own uh, subtle phrasing, and I never want the the writing to get in the way of the story. I want the writing to serve the story, but I do want it to do that. I do want the the uh, the sentence by sentence building up of the of the narrative to give pleasure on that level. Usually, usually, the the mechanism for me is to build up the drafts like an oil painting. I I know I the first draft will almost be what happens in a given scene, and then layer by layer by layer, the way oil paint works, I'm layering up texture and detail and nuance into a scene, and then in the last stages, the last drafts, I'm taking things out again. Because I'm stripping it back towards the what feels essential, and it's one of the reasons it's a slow process. Now, uh, given that your writing is a slow process, and you've just released, we've just seen publication of Under Heaven. What period of history are you marinating yourself in now? You've got me. You've got me in a pot somewhere with with spices being thrown <laughs> on me. It's, uh, uh, books, I think. Yes. I don't know, Rick. And I'm not being coy or 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 cute uh, or exhibiting avoidance behavior when I say that. I never know. Oh, really? Yeah. I never know when I finish a book what I'm going to do next. One of the things for me that has to happen is that I need to, we talked about immersion before, I need to pull out. I need to draw myself out of this very long, sustained reading and thinking about and corresponding with uh, scholars in a field to let go right now of the Tong Dynasty, just as I had to let go of Byzantium or uh, pre-conquest England or uh, Islamic Spain. I have to let go of the period and the characters and even the prose style because it shifts from book to book mm -hmm. before I can feel comfortable starting with a clean slate and figuring out what to do next. So as we sit here, I honestly don't know. I've been speaking with Guy Gabriel Kay. His new novel is Under Heaven. Thank you for joining me, Guy. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.